Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. And welcome back to the X-Zone, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell, coming to you from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Worldwide, toll-free, 1-800-610-7035. Email xzone at com On MSN Messenger, TV at hotmail.com and our website www.xzoneradiotv.com My guest this hour is John DePasquale and as a young tough John DePasquale knew he'd be, be he'd better escape his neighborhood or he would end up dead or in jail so what did he do well he stole a car only to be arrested on the Pennsylvania Turnpike then while escaping through a rest stop window on the way back up to New York he was caught again by the same cop. Um, he is the author of a very interesting book. It's entitled, all right, do you have your pencils and paper ready here, Exxon Nation? Okay, because I'm going to give it to you now, The Adventures of a Vagabond. His website is www.thetrueadventuresofavagabond.com. And uh, John DePasquale, welcome to the Exxon. Thank you very much, Rob. Okay, you've got one heck of a life story. Uh, share it with our listeners. Well, <laughs> Where would you like me to start? Uh, well, when I stole the car? Well, yeah. Is, isn't that when it all began? When you stole the car, or did well, it? Ha- yeah, you know, that? I didn't have uh, much opportunity to uh, uh, stay in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was either stay there and uh, become part of the mafia scene, uh, go on drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so uh, I decided to move out of New York, but. Uh, I didn't really start off too well. I mean, uh, to steal a car and trying to drive to Florida wasn't the way to start off. Uh, how old were you? How old were you when you stole the car and drove to Florida? I, I was probably about sixteen. My so goodness! I, and and I understand that you were driving taxis at the age of twelve. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's how, how I learned to drive. Stick shift, by the way. My goodness. <laughs> so did the taxi company know that you're only 12 years old? No, 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 no. No, what happened is that uh, there was a huge lot, mm-hmm. and the taxi cabs used to uh, park there. And so me and my friends at night used to go in and, and uh, uh, jump in the cars, ah. and uh, we used to drive our own cars. We all had keys for the cars because uh, one car, I mean, uh, one key fits mm-hmm. all the cars. So uh, we used to just crash into each other, just go into the fence, and it caused a lot of damage. Wow. So the, so you, you were actually joyriding in, in, in the taxis Tax. that you were borrowing? Well, we never left a lot. <laughs> uh, we'd stay in a lot, and, uh-huh. and they tried, tried hiring uh, you know, a whole bunch of people. Uh, I know they hired a German once, and he used mm-hmm. to chase us all over the lot and throw, uh, throw things at us, but uh, he caused more damage to the cars, uh, the taxis, than we were. So, uh, so we just uh, kind of put the place on fire, and he decided to quit, and uh, uh, they hired someone else. And uh, the fellow that they hired, uh, his name was Chico, mm-hmm. uh, he decided rather than to fight us, he'd uh, get one of us to work for him. And he happened to pick me, and so I started running numbers for him. He was a mechanic at the garage, and he worked nights. So, of course, I wouldn't let my friends uh, in driving the cars while I was working. All right, so there you were at the age of 12, uh, joyriding taxis, and uh, then you stole a car to move to Florida all the way from Brooklyn at the age of 16. Never made it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Now, so I went back to uh, Brooklyn, and, mm-hmm. and then I met uh, my first and only wife, uh, ex-wife now, and uh, went out with her for about a year, year and a half, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden she decided that she wanted to travel with the, with the Playboy Bunny, and uh, she started moving all over the United States, so right. I started to, well, I guess you'd call it stalking now. <laughs> I started trying to follow all over the United States. Uh, I found out she was in Las Vegas. Uh, I went to Las Vegas. I found out she moved to to L.A. I moved to L.A. And I thought, and I was missing her each time I'd, I'd go to these places. I found out she was in San Francisco. Went to San Francisco. Just missed her there. Mm-hmm. She went to Hawaii, and so finally I said, "I'm not going to Hawaii." So I went back to L.A. because uh, I like L.A. All right, uh, stand by, John. You and I have to take a two-minute commercial break. We'll be right back. Exo Nation. Our special guest this hour is John De Pasquale. His book, True Adventures of a Vagabond. His website is www.trueadventuresofavagabond.com. And John and I will be back on the other side of this commercial break in two minutes as we continue from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. My name is Rob McConnell. Don't go away. Take a step back in time and discover old Florida cuisine at Marsh Landing Restaurant in Felsmere. Enjoy delicacies such as frog legs, gator tail, catfish, and swamp cabbage, or enjoy the more traditional cuisine like hand-cut Angus steaks, ribs, and seafood. Join us for breakfast with a southern flair featuring sweet potato pancakes, biscuits and gravy, and much more. Planning a party? Marsh Landing's private dining room can accommodate groups from 8 to 80 people. While you're visiting, enjoy the historic pictures, artifacts, and stories that line the walls. Marsh Landing is truly a unique experience. Marsh Landing Restaurant, 44 North Broadway in historic Felsmere, or visit marshlandingrestaurant.com. Marsh Landing, old Florida cuisine at its best.
Are you interested in the paranormal, ghosts, UFOs, or psychic phenomenon? Join me, Tim Bartley, co-host of Talking to Spirits with Lightworkers Tim and Justina, coming mid-January 2017 to the XZBN. We will channel spirits live and talk to them, revealing all kinds of amazing information. Spiritual attachments will be found and removed on the show, and so much more. To find out when you can listen to Talking to Spirits with Lightworkers Tim and Justina, visit www.xzbn.net for listeners on both sides of the veil. And welcome back, everyone. John DePasquale is our special guest uh, this hour on the X-Zone. His life has been a series of close calls and crazy coincidences, acts of reckless stupidity, as well as moments of valor. John served in Vietnam as well as in an elite force of narcotics agent who traveled the world. Now, let me ask you this. How did you go from uh, a 12-year-old that was joyriding taxis to a 16-year-old who went, uh, who was caught for stealing a car on his way down to Florida to being uh, an agent uh, for the federal government? Well, uh, there's a lot that happened between that. Oh, this, uh, this I've got to hear. <laughs> this I've got to hear. Uh, well, uh, after I found my wife in, in uh, San Francisco, mm-hmm. she came back from Hawaii, she uh, 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 she was engaged to a, a fellow from New York who was coming up to give her the ring, and mm-hmm. he was driving up, and he was going to be there in a couple of hours. So I had to drive from L.A. to San Francisco to try to talk her out of it, uh, which I did. I mean, long story short, I talked her out of it. Uh, we got engaged and later got married. So uh, uh, we decided that uh, when I went back, uh, uh, you know, in New York, they had the uh, draft at that time. Mm-hmm. And... and uh, uh, when uh, when we got our draft notice, none of us would ever show up. And the reason why we never showed up uh, and, and the reason that we, we'd give was that uh, we didn't have any money to get on the train to go down to the induction station. So then they started to send us tokens for, for the uh, train. So once you got your token, you had no, you know, no choice but to, but to go down to the induction station. Mm-hmm. Well, they sent me my token. And, uh, of course, you know, once you go down to the induction station, they say, yeah, you're okay, yeah, you know, you're going to Vietnam. And I don't want to go to Vietnam, just like a lot of other young kids at that time. So I went to the local mafia guy, and, and uh, I said, hey, you know, can you help me out? And uh, he said, uh, yeah, go down to see First Sergeant so-and-so. Give him 100 bucks. Tell him I sent you down there, and he'll take care of you. Mm-hmm. So I went down to see the First uh, Sergeant at, at the uh, National Guard Armory. And uh, what he did is he, he enlisted me, but he predated my enlistment. So it predated my, my getting the token. So now I was in the National Guard. So, uh, so now uh, uh, I had uh, uh, I had had to go for Fort Dix for training, and and, and then uh, uh, my wife decided to go back to Los Angeles, and that's when I decided uh, I wanted to get a transfer. So I got a transfer back to Los Angeles at the Burbank National Guard. Well, lo and behold, while I was at the, the uh, Burbank National Guard, there was word that uh, the whole unit was going to get activated, and, and we were all going to Vietnam. Oh boy! Said, well, I don't want to stay here. I'm going back to New York. So I got a transfer back to New York. While in New York, three, three uh, months later, I found out that I was AWOL. Apparently, the uh, uh, transfer never went through. So I had to go hmm. back to uh, uh, Los Angeles. And, uh, of course, uh, they levied us, and I was one of the first ones to go to Vietnam. 
so after coming back from Vietnam, I, 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 I was this was 68, 69. I was kind of disgusted with the United States, disgusted with the war, uh, and uh, I just uh, told my wife. I said, you know, let's let's move to Australia. So we moved to Australia, and uh, I was in Australia. That's where I met Dave Hackworth. I don't know if you heard of Dave Hackworth. He was one of the highest decorated. Uh, uh, in U.S. history. He, he was kind of like an Audie Murphy. And in fact, uh, he was the character and uh, Marlon Brando played in Apocalypse Now. Well, That's we good. became good friends and uh, we opened up a Datsun dealership and, and uh, uh, we were good for about a year and then all of a sudden they went into a depression uh, and interest went, rates went up to like 20, 21%. And uh, Dave, Dave Hackworth, he had uh, a uh, retirement. He was a retired colonel. Me, I didn't have anything. All I had, I had an SL gas station. I was renting renting uh, uh, bicycles out. And uh, so it was costing me a few thousand dollars a month. So so I had to leave. And at that time, I was having problems with my wife. She was kind of, you know, uh, drinking and she was taking pills. So, so what I did is I took my son and, and I left her there. And it took me it took us six months to to uh, find me, which is not one of my better times. Uh, but uh, uh, from there, it's uh, 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 I, I had a five year break, and then I went back into the army because I was in uh, Washington State at the time. And after my wife found me, she said, "Well, you know, you're very immature. You know, you don't know how to keep money." And, and uh, although we were never poor, we were never broke. And so uh, I decided to go back into the Army. And when I did go back into the Army, I averaged about a grade a year because I had Vietnam experience. Right. So I had a combat veteran. And uh, uh, they said, okay, well, look, you took your test. Uh, you could be anything you want. I said, well, you know, I was a mechanic before, and I don't want to be a mechanic again. I said, look, I was always, you know, stealing cars. And, and I said, I want to be a policeman. So they said, okay, you could be a military policeman. So they made me a military policeman and sent me to Germany. So I went to Germany, and uh, of course, you know, I was, I'm six foot three, I was slim, and I had a lot of medals on, and I was only like a spec four at the time. So I looked good at, at the main gate directing traffic. So I worked the main gate quite a bit. So uh, I got to know the, uh, the chief of uh, uh, the narcotics section, and uh, he asked me if I wanted to work uh, uh, a few times with them, and I did. So I worked mm -hmm. undercover a while. And of course, I was good. I was from Brooklyn. I knew how to, you know, bull my way to uh, uh, just about any drug deal. Right. Plus, and, you had plus uh, you had the experience of, uh, you know, you had your life experience that included, you know, working, you know, having the contacts in the underworld. So you knew exactly both sides of the fence, which is great. Oh, I was good. I yeah. mean, uh, I, I, uh, we made cases that uh, we were one of the highest in Germany making cases. So he said, "Well, we want you to work for us full time." Yeah. Okay. So I work for them full time now without you know, wearing a uniform, but now I'm still in, in, in a military policeman. They said, "Well, look, why don't you become an agent?" I said, "Well, you know, I don't have a degree. Uh, I mean, I don't even—I didn't even have a high school diploma at the time, believe mm -hmm. it or not." I said, "Well, you know, I, but I lied." I said, "Well, you know, I got a, a high school diploma, but I don't—I don't have a degree." I said, "Well," they said, "Go ahead and get your degree." So on my application to uh, Central Texas College, I put down that you know, I went to John Jay Junior High School, yeah. and I went this. And, uh, and they accepted it. And I wound up graduating from uh, Central Texas College with uh, a 3.8 GPA. Wow. Surprised the hell out of me. Good and for I never you. studied. 
Well, you see, I, I disagree with you there. I believe that. See, I believe that the school of hard knocks is the best school of all. That you the can streets, have, that's where it, you're going to exactly. learn. I, I met a lot of smart, uh, yeah. street, uh, book smart people. Yeah. I tell you, they were dumb as rocks. Exactly, and you know, I, I fear for the kids who are in college today because they're, you know, it's nice to come out of college with all these degrees, like. But what jobs do they have to come out to? Because they don't have the street smarts. They're not flexible. They they cannot adapt to situations very fast. Where a person like yourself, you had the best of both worlds. They expect everything. Yeah. Uh, they want everything handed to them. You know, I had to work for everything that I did. You know, I mean, nothing came easy for me. Yeah, you know, that's I, true. So, uh, so I, I became an agent and... and uh, when I went out, I went to a. a, a I was. Uh, they sent me to uh, the state of Washington, and I, I was uh, on probation for a year. And then after my probation, they they made me. Uh, uh, I was in charge of the, all the sex crimes uh, that came in, and I started specializing in that. And, and then, uh, and they said, "Well, you know, uh, uh, you worked narcotics before. You know, you've been here too long in, in the state of Washington. I was only there two years." They said, uh, "We're going to be sending you to Korea." I said, well, "Okay, fine." Uh, so they sent me to Korea, and then I became, uh, uh, I was chief of the narcotics section there. Mm-hmm. Now tell me, I heard stories uh, that there were major marijuana farms in Korea. Is that true? Oh, I could tell you a story, yeah. Really? Yeah, quick story. Uh, now, we had the money and we had the equipment uh, where we, when we worked with the Korean mm-hmm. the state police, we wouldn't work with the local police because they were corrupt. But the state police, uh, anytime we had a case involving a Korean, we we always got them involved. And they'd love coming with us because we used to have helicopters. If we needed tanks, we'd get tanks. So anyway, I had an informant that said that uh, uh, one, a farmer in a small town was growing marijuana. And so I called the state police up, and uh, uh, they came over, and, and uh, we jumped in a helicopter and, and uh, flew around this village. Mm-hmm. Every farmer in this town was growing marijuana. Oh, my God. The whole farm. I mean, the center of the town was just a road, and all in back of the town, all the farms, were all marijuana fields. So we landed right in the middle of the village. The Mm -hmm. the two Korean police got out. Of course, me and my my partner and and the pilot, co-pilot, were just hanging around. They had all the villages chopped down all the marijuana and and loaded all in in the middle of of the... uh, the town there, and they burned it. Oh, my Lord. All high <laughs> after that. <laughs> I'm surprised we were able to fly out of the village. Oh, heavens. Talk, uh, you know, that must have been the world's biggest bong. Oh, man, that was yeah. a big pile. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, it's all over there. Now, now what, what methamphetamine. Your... We, had a, we had a ship coming into yeah. Busan that was loaded with uh, methamphetamine. Uh, and and uh, we had to, uh, the uh, Korean police seize that. So what jurisdiction, what was your authority outside of a military establishment or off U.S. property? Uh, None, unless it involved an American. If it involved an American, Mm -hmm. we had unlimited jurisdiction. We go in there, we used to crash in bars, and if he was an American soldier, we could do anything. So so basically you were were federal agents uh, within the Defense Department. Department of the Army, correct. You know, I'll bet you a lot of people listening tonight had no idea that the Army, as well as the other branches of the Armed Forces, have their own law enforcement agencies within it. Everybody's heard of the military police, and we've all heard of NCIE, uh, what is it, NCIS? OSI. OSI. We've all heard about these, but to but to, you know, to actually know that there's policing within each federal uh, jurisdiction, you know. 
Anytime you see those shootouts on mm-hmm. the installation like this last night, I can't think of that uh, guy that shot up uh, the installation. He was a soldier. Right. CID would investigate that. Now, we would normally get the FBI involved and do mm-hmm. a joint investigation because uh, 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 either he would be prosecuted in a federal court down uh, in the civilian community yeah. or he would be uh, uh, tried in the military community. I believe in his case it's going to be the military community, so CID would be the only one doing the investigation. John, stand by. You and I have to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. Exxon Nation, John DePasquale is our special guest. His website is trueadventuresofavagabond.com, and John and I will be back on the other side of the news. Don't go away. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. worldwide. Email exxon at exxonradiotv.com on MSN Messenger, exxonradiotv at hotmail.com and our website, www.exxonradiotv.com. My guest this hour is John DePasquale. We're talking about John's book, True Adventures of a Vagabond. His website is www.trueadventuresofvagabond.com. I was wondering if you could give us an insider's view of the invasion of Panama and the capture of Manuel Noriega. Sure. Uh I was always uh, designated uh, on my officer's brief as uh, special oper- uh, special operations. So if something came up, mm-hmm. uh, what uh, uh, Washington would do, because our boss was Dick Cheney, uh, uh, what, uh, uh, what Washington would do, they, they would say, okay, who qualifies for this particular uh, uh, mission? And so I came up as one of the agents while I was in uh, uh, the state of Washington uh, as qualifying. And uh, what it was is, uh, and, you know, we never know where we're going to go until like mm-hmm. a day or so, or sometimes hours before we're going to leave. And uh, uh, in this particular case, uh, we found out uh, that night that we were going to uh, Panama. And, uh, but just before that, uh, uh, when they'd done the invasion, I wasn't part of the invasion team. The invasion team that went in were all special forces. Uh, thing is, they got their butt buns kicked uh, mm-hmm. because, uh, uh, and I've been to Panama quite a few times after that. Uh, the Bay of Panama is all muck. 
and it's up to your waist. So when they went ahead and landed in, in, uh, in, in the bay there, they were all stuck in, in, in the muck, and, and they were firing at them from uh, the uh, uh, houses and the buildings from on land. So they really got uh, beat up. So anyway, uh, what happened is uh, uh, they chased him, and then they found out that he was hiding in a monastery. Like most of these uh, uh, dictators, uh, you know, once they're cornered, they, they hide in a hole, or in this case, he was in a monastery. Well, of course, they couldn't go into a monastery, so what they did is they got us, and, and uh, there were several of us, and, and we had the monastery surrounded, and uh, I, I was on a night shift, uh, and uh, so I was playing the music, uh, me and my partner, and, and the windows were open because cause it's hot and humid there. We weren't running the cars. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this monk came out. He was really upset, man. He was speaking Spanish. I, I, I didn't understand, but I understood that, uh, that he was ticked music off, yeah. was going on to the compound because, you know, they, they pray a hundred mm -hmm. times a day, and, and they, they like peace and quiet. So uh, anyway, we turned the radio down. Of course, I, I reported to my uh, commander, and uh, he uh, he sent it up to command, and next thing I know, they had helicopter gunships circling the monastery with loudspeakers <laughs> playing music and Def oh Leppard and, and Wishbone Ash, and and uh, the following day they kicked Noriega out of the uh, uh, monastery. So, uh, thing is, one of the monks came out, and and uh, uh, Noriega was afraid to come out because he was afraid. Number one, we were going to shoot him. Or number two, that the mob that was waiting outside was going to get him and they were going to hang him because uh, they really wanted to get him bad. But we promised him that he wouldn't be hurt. And so he came out mm -hmm. on the other side. And, and, uh, and, that, and that night uh, we flew back. So uh, I was only there a couple of nights. So, but, uh, yeah, we, were, we got him out uh, just because I was playing the radio loud. Tell me, what was Dick Cheney and uh, former President Ronald Reagan like on their downtime? What, what, what were they like? You know, we've all seen them on television uh, when the cameras are on, but when they're when the cameras are off, what are they like? You know, uh, uh, like I said, Dick Cheney was my boss, mm -hmm. and there were only two thousand agents, CID agents worldwide. Uh, now he has his own agents that travel with him. You know, uh, anytime he travels, but anytime he travels someplace, there's always agents close by that augment the agents that are there. So anytime you see Dick Cheney or any mm -hmm. Secretary of Defense walking around and you see a bunch of civilians around him with the earpieces, those are not, not Secret Service agents. Those are CID agents. CID agents take care of the Secretary of Defense. Secret Service agents take care of uh, uh, the President. That's why we overlapped a lot. Uh, you know, we'd help uh, the Secret Service, and it's rare that the Secret Service would help us because we always had a lot of people. Uh, but... Uh, I tell you, they, they were the best people that I've ever uh, uh, been with. Uh, Dick Cheney, I was in Las Vegas with him, and, and we had adjoining rooms. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, he'd come out, he'd talk to us. Uh, he says, uh, you know, he'd say, how you doing? Do you need anything? And, and we'd go to restaurants with him where he'd have meetings. And, of course, we were at the bar. And, and he'd, he'd leave his, uh, uh, the people that he was with. He'd come over to the bar. He says, uh, you guys okay? You need anything? Did you eat? Make sure they feed you. Make sure they send the bill over to, to my, my, my aid. And, you know, so he was really good. Uh, uh, he always took care of his agents. And, and he loved the military. I mean, he was, uh, uh, he, he protected the military from quite a bit. Uh, so, what, was, uh, what was Ronald Reagan like? Well, Ronald Reagan, again, he, he's uh, 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 
secured by the Secret Service. But, of course, the Secret Service, uh, you know, they have to take care of the First Lady. They mm -hmm. have to take care of a lot of other dignitaries when they come to Washington or, or they travel. So uh, Ronald Reagan w was going to be at his ranch that particular, uh, I don't know if it was during a week or on a weekend. Don't make a difference. But uh, uh, I was in the state of, uh, uh, I was in San Francisco working major fraud cr uh, crimes at the time. And, of course, with that special designator, I said, uh, hey, John, you want to go over to, to the ranch? Uh, uh, we need a couple of agents down there. I said, yeah, okay, fine. So uh, uh, I went down to a ranch in Santa Barbara. And, and again, I only spent a couple of uh, nights there. Uh, but uh, we were on the back uh, of the house, and uh, you know, Ronald Reagan would come out. He'd, he'd, he'd uh, say hello. How are you guys doing? Do you need anything? You know, make sure you, you know, uh, come in anytime you need to use the bathroom. Now we had a, a trailer, so we, you know, we never used the house facilities. Uh, but uh, and then Nancy Reagan would come out uh, uh, at nighttime, and it would get cold uh, because you know we had mountains all around us. And she says, you guys want coffee? Uh, you know, I just made an apple pie. Wow. Like pie, you know. And, of course, we didn't turn down the apple pie. So she came out with two big pieces mm -hmm. of hot apple pie, and, and she poured us some, some like, uh, tea for my friend. I had some coffee. Nicest people you'd ever want to meet. Ronald, Ronald Reagan loved working on a ranch. He'd come in. Mm -hmm. He'd be all muddy, his boots, and he'd take his boots off in the back of the house. And, and uh, just a down-to-earth down guy and uh, you know i don't care what your politics are people that met him that didn't agree with him were his friends when he left he was really a nice man tell he me really in, in your opinion why is the united states losing the war against drugs with mexico <laughs> well they're not letting our agents in there uh you see we're not allowed to have uh, guns in there uh, I mean, we could go over the border. We could break up those cartels easy. But, but you know, if uh, the United States went into Pakistan to get Osama bin Laden, why don't they go into Mexico? Oh, you, you know why that was successful? We never told anybody we were going in. Well, Let me tell you something. If okay. you want any, any information to leak out, tell anybody that may have anything close to the operation, and you're going to blow it. Because everybody now has a secret, and everybody wants to tell that secret to somebody else. Uh, uh, it was right that, it, that they didn't tell uh, uh, Afghanistan that they were going in there, uh, uh, and they just sent them in. And that's why that was successful. So, uh, you know, what's, what's so special about Mexico where we're actually letting them do whatever they want? The drugs are coming in, uh, you know, across the border. We've got National Guard down there that... Basically, just to augment the uh, the uh, the U.S. Border Patrol, they have no jurisdiction, they have no powers. So, well, you know, is this? Those borders are so porous. Yeah. I, I mean, so many different areas that that you get through that border. Uh, it's it's crazy. You know, I mean, I forgot how many hundreds of miles that border is, but uh, there's no way you could secure that unless you put a whole bunch of uh, more monitoring equipment there. Uh, and again, uh, it's politics. You know, if uh, if you tell uh, uh, the, the border states, okay, uh, go ahead and, and do what you need to do to secure your border, mm -hmm. uh, uh, we'll go ahead and, and, and uh, fund it. They wouldn't do that, you know. Uh, so, uh, yeah, anybody, I, I mean, there are so many hundreds and hundreds and millions of dollars worth, worth of uh, uh, pounds of uh, drugs that are coming through there. It's, uh, it's crazy. You know, and then there's the drugs that are coming in from uh, South America. Well, I got a South America story for you if you want to hear it. Sure, I'd love to. <laughs> uh, I was working narcotics, uh, uh, I told you, in, in Korea. Mm -hmm. 
Well, uh, I was operations officer a couple of years later uh, uh, in uh, Washington State, and uh, I met this officer, this captain, uh, who was part of uh, an operation called Watchtower. Now, all this information is, is available on, on the Internet, and there were hearings of, uh, about the CIA. Remember when the CIA was accused of, of uh, helping transport drugs? And, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, they were all hearings. Well, I was talking to this captain. It was true. It was happening. And it was happening when Noriega was there. That's one of the reason, reasons why uh, uh, we went in. It wasn't because uh, 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 Noriega was doing drugs. It's because he failed to cooperate with us anymore. We knew he was doing drugs years before that. We were using our helicopters. And what this captain did, he was part of this uh, uh, operation. It was Operation Watchtower in Colombia. And there were several uh, special forces groups that were involved in this thing. They would load up the drugs in in Colombia on military, U.S. Army military aircraft, C-130s, and fly them to Panama. And then from Panama, it was easy going into the United States. And they'd fly into the United States, but not with military aircraft. Uh, we just stopped, as far mm-hmm. as I know now, again, you know, I was talking to this captain. This captain said, as far as we know, you know, it stayed in, in uh, uh, Panama. And he was working with the CIA because he was kind of a liaison between the CIA and a special forces operation that was uh, working down there at the time. So, uh, but yeah, there's still a lot of drugs coming in through Panama. But Panama is very strict. You get caught with a, a joint in Panama, mm-hmm. you go away for a couple of years. And uh, they, have, they, they have on their border between Colombia and Panama what's called the Darien Gap. Well, I think it's a three or five mile uh, uh, no man's land. And Colombia wanted to build a road through there uh, to open up, you know, transportation to, uh, from Colombia mm-hmm. to Panama. And, Colombia, and Panama said, no way in hell, because they know what would happen. The drugs would just pour in from over there. A free for all. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so there's still that uh, no man's land, and uh, and you got you take your life into your hands when you're going over there because they're still smuggling drugs mm-hmm. through there, but they're doing it on horseback and they're doing it, you know, with people with knapsacks and, you know, uh, but they're not doing it with trucks. You know, during the during the time of the Vietnam War, it uh, it was evident that there was a heavy drug problem within the within the uh, armed forces of the United States and in Vietnam. Is there still a major problem with drugs in the, in the armed forces today? Uh, You know, I don't know. I've been retired for over 10 years. Uh, I know when I was in Vietnam Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, I was never a drug. My biggest drug when I was growing up in in New York, and there were drugs all around me, uh, was we used to drink cough medicine, which had codeine. Right. (laughs) You know, that was our big high. You know, we never, uh, never done uh, the, the hard stuff. And you never coughed. I never coughed. I never had a cold. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was in Vietnam, uh, uh, I never smoked marijuana before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were selling marijuana in a pack, Marlboro pack. And what they would do is they would take the, the uh, tobacco out and then fill it with marijuana. And you could get a pack of uh, uh, marijuana uh, 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 cigarettes for like $2, $3. Wow. So I bought a pack of marijuana, you know, and I had one or two, and of course it didn't do anything for mm-hmm. me, so I forgot what I did with it. But, uh, oh, yeah, there, there's a lot of drugs there. Now, at that time, I wasn't uh, working drugs. I was a mechanic. And as my time as a mechanic, 
careful with that. And, and this goes back to my experience with stealing cars and, and you know, growing up in New York. I was a, a, a motor sergeant, and uh, all our vehicles were broken down. We must have had, out of about uh, oh, 60, 70 vehicles that we had, maybe 10 of them were running. And the problem was is when we'd order parts, I was in Plaikou, uh, uh, when we ordered parts from Saigon, they would never come. So I flew to Saigon because I was in a, a, a salt helicopter company. I flew to Saigon to find out why we can't get any parts. And I said, well, you know, you just got to, you know, stay on the list. They'll be there eventually. And, and, you know, they'd give you all sorts of crap. Well, when I was there, I saw this whole motor pool full of new vehicles, the new vehicles that we needed. So I went back and I said, okay, look, I'm going to try something. So I got one of the, the vehicles that were blowing up. And, and you know, uh, uh, are you familiar with the military uh, uh, and uh, their registration systems on the vehicles? No, I'm not. But you, we've got to take our final break. When we come back, we'll have to finish off with this story. Uh, Exo Nation, our special guest is, you ready for this, John DePasquale. He is the author of The True Adventures of a Vagabond, his website, trueadventuresofavagabond.com and we'll be back on the other side of this commercial break as the Exxon continues from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Hi, I'm Larry Lawson, host of Paranormal Stakeout. With over 36 years in law enforcement, I have learned a few things. The most important is the proper gathering and preservation of evidence is vital to putting the bad guy behind bars. It's no different in the world of paranormal investigation, whether it's the search for the afterlife, cryptozoology, UFOs, and extraterrestrials. How we gather the evidence, preserve that evidence, and present it to a jury of our peers will make the ultimate difference in proving the existence of worlds and entities that are beyond our imagination. Join me, Larry Lawson, every week on Paranormal Stakeout when, along with my guests, we'll take a journey to prove with indisputable evidence what man has struggled to believe for centuries. Go to xzbn.net for the broadcast schedule and check me out at paranormalstakeout.com. True healing must address four levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, for us to live joyful and productive lives. We tend to treat three of the four, leaving the spiritual languishing. If you're tired of the same dysfunctional patterns cropping up in your life, soul balancing is for you. Trixie Phelps, owner and founder of Soul Balancing, is a naturally gifted energy healer trained in numerous esoteric forms, including shamanism. Trixie has created a powerful modality that safely and effectively clears your energetic field. A soul balancing session can remove interference, heal trauma, and restore your hope. Contact Trixie for a life-changing long-distance session today, www.soulbalancing.world. Listening to the X Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Exonation, uh, John DePasquale is our special guest. He is the author of The True Adventures of a Vagabond, his website, trueadventuresofavagabond.com. John, before we went to the uh, final break, uh, you were telling us about you went to Saigon and you're trying to find out how come you're not getting parts to the vehicles that you need to be repaired since there were only 10 vehicles out of about 40 or 50 that were working. So you went to this place and lo and well, behold. I mean, uh, the uh, motor pool was full of vehicles. Right. So uh, 
the uh, vehicles, uh, military vehicles have a logbook, which is mm-hmm. called a logbook. And it's a record of all the maintenance that's pulled on, uh, on, on that particular vehicle. And also inside that logbook is, a, is the registration for the vehicle, which reflects the registration numbers on the vehicle itself. Mm-hmm. What I did is I went back to uh, Playco, to my uh, motor pool, and I got one of the uh, uh, vehicles that were blown up. In this particular case, the first one was a Jeep. So uh, what I did is uh, uh, I made up a stencil with uh, the uh, registration numbers. I took the logbook, flew back to uh, Saigon with uh, uh, one of my drivers, and uh, went to the motor pool, went in the back, and uh, stenciled the registration number on the hood on both sides <laughs> of the vehicle, and then put the bumper numbers on, on the bumper. Uh, we drove the uh, uh, vehicle up to the gate where you drive outside of the uh, this huge uh, uh, motor pool. Right. We'd show them the logbook for, for the one that was actually blown up. They'd look at it. They'd look at the registration number and wave us through. Voila, we had a brand-new vehicle. So I gave that vehicle to the commander. I went back several more times. We wound up coming back in convoys. <laughs> uh, after about uh, two months, we probably had... 95% of our vehicles running, all new vehicles. They didn't know how I was doing it, but they made me battalion motor sergeant, which now there was like 150 vehicles, and half right. of them weren't running, and I'd done the same thing on that. Oh, my gosh. So, uh, so needless to say, I just relocated vehicles that uh, weren't being utilized uh, and, and put them in a combat zone, uh, and everybody had new vehicles. So I was the only one in the motor pool that, that had a... Uh, uh, hot water heater. I was living in a motor pool. <laughs> T- tell me, what what message would you like to leave the Exxon Nation with tonight, John? Well, you know, that, that's that's kind of hard. We're all individuals. We all uh, make our own way in life. You just got to be positive in what you want to do. Uh, keep a mm-hmm. positive attitude. Try to stay away from negative people because uh, no matter what you want to do in life, uh, they're going to tell you you can't do it. And that's what always motivated me. When somebody told me I couldn't do something, yeah. I had to show them I could do it. You know, even if I failed, at least I could come back and say, hey, look, at least I tried. What did you do? John, I want to thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. and uh, Gentlemen, anytime. All right, sir. Take care of yourself, and thanks for being there for us, not only yourself but all the other brave men and women of the armed forces who are out there protecting democracy and keeping us safe at night. Thank you, well, sir. Thank you. Exonation, uh, my guest this hour has been John DePasquale. He is the author of The True Adventures of a Vagabond. His website, www.trueadventuresofavagabond.com. And I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news at six and a half minutes past the hour as we continue from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. 1-800-610-7035, worldwide toll-free. Email exxon at exxonradiotv.com. On MSN Messenger, exxonradiotv at hotmail.com. Our websites for the radio show TV show, exxonradiotv.com. Our archives, xzonepodcast.com. And to get the latest news on the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology, exxonnews.com. I'll be back on the other side of the news. My name is Rob McConnell. Don't go away.